This week's episode is being brought to you by the New York Times. For some messed up reason, you can still get a full digital subscription to the world's leading newspaper for $1 a week. If you have listened to this show at all in the last few months, you know my feelings on such an insanely small amount of money. For something as wonderful as the New York Times is frankly insulting to the efforts of the journalists who are right now in war zones and places of conflict all over the world. They're putting their lives at risk to bring you the news. And I hope whoever made this $1 a week subscription realizes that it is ridiculous. But until they come to their senses, they still want me to tell you you can go to nytimes.com to sign up. Right through the very heart of it, New York, New York. I want to wake up. Winter is coming. It's on its way, and for me living in Canada, that probably means something different than it does to people who reside in warmer climates. Despite me being Canadian, I absolutely hate winter. I hate being cold. I don't like skiing. I hate snow. I dislike hockey. And quite frankly, the only reason that I do enjoy the winter monster becomes it means I can sit in front of a fire and drink whiskey and red wine and listen to music and watch Netflix and I don't have to go outside. I basically hibernate. Most Canadians do. The other night was the first real cold night of the season. It came in fast and windy with the type of chill that seems to make its way through to your bones. And I started thinking about the annual hibernation that was about to occur across my country and in my own home. And then I started wondering if the human body is capable of real hibernation. How could we survive? We are creatures that need constant nutrition, constant food, constant water. And so you would think that hibernating would be impossible. There's also the fact that because of COVID, it feels like we've all been hibernating from our lives, separated and waiting for life to begin again. With current restrictions shutting down indoor dining and small businesses, everything kind of feels like it's going to sleep. You could say hibernating has been on my brain a lot lately. Today's episode is not really about food. It's not really about chefs. It is about the limitations of eating that keep us humans from being able to sleep. And I found two stories that were so odd, so strange, that I had to tell you about them. And so today on Let's Talk About Chef, it's all about the big sleep. First things first, hibernating animals are not sleeping. I don't know why for some reason I always thought that. Animals like bears and bats and skunks and groundhogs, when the weather turns cold and the prospect of little to no food is available, they go underground to save energy and they essentially kind of die. They're able to shut down their bodies and become completely inactive. Their heart rates slow down to only a few beats per minute and their body temperature drops and they slow their breathing. To get ready to survive the months spent underground, animals have to stuff themselves with food to essentially double their size so that they can use that energy and their fat to survive. And that is the real problem when it comes to the idea of humans being able to hibernate. We can't do that. 
We can't stuff ourselves to the point of bursting without having to go to the bathroom. A lot. And animals who hibernate don't have to go to the bathroom. The waste just gets absorbed as energy. The problem of trying to get people to be able to sleep for long periods of time is actually a very large problem for places like NASA, who have been very aware of the fact that at some point in our future we will be sending astronauts a lot further than we have ever gone before. And in order to be able to survive those great distances, we have to be able to sleep through it. To pause our bodies and wake up at the other end the same as we were when we first launched into space and began the journey. There are so many movies about space travel that have some aspect of hibernation in them. Like in Interstellar when Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway go to sleep for years on their way to Jupiter. Or Passengers with Chris Pratt when he wakes up alone on a ship full of sleeping humans who are going to be asleep for 120 years while they travel through space. To put all this into perspective, it would take NASA or SpaceX around six years to travel to Jupiter with current rocket technology. Six years. Now, if the average age of an astronaut is 34, then by the time they get to Jupiter, the crew will be 40 years old and will have presumably had massive amounts of food and water to eat and drink to survive for the six years of space travel. Wouldn't it just be easier to have the 34-year-old astronauts go to sleep for six years, not consume any food, and wake up 34 years old when they get there? Every day that an astronaut is in space, they eat around 1.8 pounds of food per meal per day. So that's five and a half pounds of food a day. So one astronaut, one, will need 12,045 pounds of food just to survive the trip to Jupiter. And that's just one astronaut. A crew of four will need 48,180 pounds of food to survive the journey. It would take nine and a half years for that same crew to get to Pluto. And to get really crazy, the nearest star to us in our own galaxy, the Milky Way, is four and a half light years away. But rocket engines can't go the speed of light. They can only go about 56,000 miles per hour. So it would take around 81,000 years to get there. Or 2,700 human generations of people. So the entire history of the human race is only 3,000 generations old. So 81,000 years traveling in a ship in our own galaxy for roughly the same amount of time that Homo sapiens have been walking the Earth now, just for fun, if humans for some reason were able to survive 81,000 years, like let's just say you could, the amount of food you would need for one person in space to travel to the nearest star in our galaxy would be 162,607,500 pounds of food. Now, just to hurt your brain a little bit more, the nearest galaxy to our own Milky Way is the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy, and to get there, it would take 749 million years. Needless to say, human hibernation is a problem. It's a problem that needs to be solved, so that we can escape this dumpster fire we have caused on our own planet. And for all we know, it's not possible. Except that it's happened before. Siberia is quite possibly the most harsh environment that humans can endure on Earth. It's around 5.1 million square miles, and is one of the least populated places on Earth despite being three quarters of all of Russia. It's a place of snow and ice and wind. A place where snowflakes can be 12 inches wide, 
or sometimes thin needles of ice will fall from the sky. The temperature can go to 88 below zero. It's where Russia would send its prisoners and political rivals, but not to a jail cell, just to Siberia, because the land is punishment enough that you can't escape it. A young Joseph Stalin was exiled to Siberia when he was only 20 years old, and he stayed there for years, unable to escape. And if you were foolish enough to try and walk the lands to get back to civilization, wolves would attack you in the night. Later in his life, Stalin would doodle pictures of snarling wolves all of the time. It's the place that beat the armies of Napoleon and Hitler, who couldn't survive the punishing conditions and lost hundreds of thousands of men in the winter, all while Russian soldiers waited for spring. It's said that the two greatest generals in Russian history are the months January and February. Their death tolls are staggering. And yet, despite these conditions, humans have lived in Siberia for around 125,000 years. Some of our earliest ancestors have been found frozen in the ice there along with woolly mammoth babies and Ice Age wolves. Summers in Siberia are short. The growing season is only a few months long before the snows return, and so humans have to grow as much as they can in such a small window of time. And sometimes nature won't even provide enough of a growing season for that. On years of drought or famine, families would be getting ready to try and survive the horrible winter, and that's where the story of Siberian hibernation comes from. In years of bad growing seasons, peasants would spend the fall stacking firewood in large wooden huts that could hold up to 10 people. While the men were stacking wood, the women would be baking bread, lots of bread, which would be stored inside the huts along with drums of water and as much alcohol they could distill from wheat and potatoes. When the winter arrived, families of up to 10 people would lie down in a circle around a small fire in the center of the room and slow their breathing and enter a state of sleep and meditation. Each day, one person would stay awake by themselves and quietly tend to the fire. This was also their day to go to the bathroom and make sure that the life-giving warmth of the flames didn't go out. Outside the shack, snow would be piling up in mountains around them. Wolves would be at the door, but still these families would sleep, only getting up once a day to eat a small mouthful of bread and take a small sip of water before lying back down again to do virtually nothing. By slowing their breathing and limiting all movement to only chewing once a day, these people were able to slow down their metabolisms, their heart rates, and their bodies required less to survive. Of course, they still had to vacate their bowels, but it's far less frequent than if someone who was active and eating a lot every day. By the time the spring sun would return, these peasants would awake from their imposed sleep and return to summer life, hoping that the harvest would provide enough nourishment that they wouldn't again have to go to sleep. But if needed, they would sink back into their method of surviving a strange way of hibernation that worked for thousands of years. I'm so tired I haven't slept a wink I'm so tired My mind is on the blink I wonder should I get up and fix myself a drink No, no, no
On December 21st, 1887, in a small town in Vermont, the village newspaper, the Montpellier Argus and Patriots front page, was covered with a story that seems more like science fiction than fact. And yet, by all accounts, it happened. The story was found in a journal that belonged to the reporter's uncle William, who had died years earlier. While flipping through his uncle's writings, the reporter stumbled upon a story of one winter in Vermont that his uncle saw something that baffled and haunted him. The story of one family who put their elderly and weak family members into cold storage for the winter. William had been a doctor, traveling in early January across Vermont when the cold and snow of the day got to be too much, and he stopped at the home of an extremely poor family that was isolated about 20 minutes outside of town. The summer had not yielded enough crops for the entire family to survive the winter months, and so four men and two women had been chosen to go to sleep. William watched as the family gave a drugged tea made from what appeared to be roots and herbs to the six family members who had volunteered to sleep. While the rest of the family celebrated around a fire with plenty of alcohol, the six members slowly fell asleep, asleep so deep that it almost seemed like death to William. Once the six were collapsed, right where they had been standing only minutes earlier, the other family members undressed them except for their underwear and carefully dragged them outside into the snow where they left them to freeze in the harsh winter night. As William sat there in shock, the rest of the family continued celebrating the night away, while their wives and husbands slowly froze outside. Their fingers and ears and noses turned white, their bodies became hard as their blood froze in their veins, and after several hours, the family under the light of the full moon placed the six people into a large wooden box that was lined with hay, packing them in like they were going to ship them across the world. Then the box was sealed, and snow was piled onto it until the wood disappeared under the mountain of snow. William was understandably in shock. This went against everything he knew about human life, and yet the family were convinced in their argument that the people in the box were fine, and he should return in May to come and see them wake up. And so, the next day, William left to continue his journey. On May 10th, William returned to the family in the mountains, who welcomed him warmly. The air was warm, but still there was snow lingering on the ground in the shadows, and the wooden box that held the frozen family members was still covered in this melting mountain of snow and ice. As William watched, men removed the snow and pried open the lid of the box, and carefully removed one frozen person at a time and laid them out in the snow. After a few hours, the bodies were placed into steaming baths dug out of hemlock trees and filled with a potion made from hemlock. Slowly, buckets of warm water would be added to the baths while all six still frozen bodies were rubbed vigorously and continuously. And to William's amazement, the bodies started to move in the baths. Slowly, fingers would twitch and arms would flex until finally all six pairs of eyes were open. They were then brought into the cabin and placed by a roaring fire and given a mug of moonshine, each which they drank quickly, choking on the strong alcohol. Then, it was like nothing had happened. There was no sign of any after-effects of being asleep for four months, in the snow. The six sat down to a massive meal of hunted game of potatoes left over and waiting for them. This story is considered to be a legend now. Word has reached far and wide telling William's tale of the frozen mountain people. But there are still those in the mountains of Vermont who swear that it's true. Unfortunately, the drug tea and whatever was in it has been lost to history. 
If it had been written down, the knowledge of this wonder drug that could pause human life hundreds of years ago could help us modern humans in our search for a way to travel and survive through space. One day, human beings will be on spaceships flying through the universe. We have to. Now, if for some reason we can survive climate change, pandemics, starvation, global droughts, earthquakes, flooding, there's also the threat of nuclear war all the time, and we last a few billion years into the future, the sun is eventually going to swallow the earth. Our home is temporary. Our history is temporary. And we will need to figure out how to be able to survive journeys 81,000 years long to go and find a new home. And we can't eat our way there. We won't be able to fit all of the supplies we will need. And so for now we sit and we wait for an answer that quite possibly will never come. An answer that may have been solved a few hundred years ago in rural Vermont. All I know is that until this pandemic is over and we can go back to our lives and friends and loved ones and restaurants, I will be hibernating this winter. We all will be. For now. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me and produced by Tim McDonald. If you want to write into the podcast, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. I got an email the other day that said this show is now a top 10 globally ranked food podcast, and so I want to thank you for listening. This show would be nothing without people enjoying it and talking about it to others, and thank you so much for doing that. I, of course, want to thank the New York Times again for letting me talk about them. Now, as a Christmas episode, next week's of the show will be myself and Tim talking about a food movie again. We have had dozens of requests for us to watch The 100-Foot Journey and then talk about it, and so that's exactly what we're going to do. So if you want to watch that movie before next week's episode, please do and join along. I haven't seen it. I don't know what to expect, but we're probably going to tear it apart. That's enough from me, and so as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service. And have a great week. While you were sleeping, your babies grew. The stars shined and the shadows moved. Time flew. The phone rang. There was a silence when the kitchen sang. Its songs competed like kids for space. We stared for hours. Maker's face, they gave us pics, said go mine the sun and go gold and come back when you're done. Uh oh, uh oh. While you were sleeping, you tossed, you turned, you rolled your eyes as the world burned, the heavens fell, the earth quaked. You must be, but you weren't awake, no You were dreaming, you ignored the sun You grew your power garden for your little ones And you found brides for them on Christmas Eve They hung young Cain from the Adam trees And